Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for listening today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, the best-selling author of books like Buddha's Brain and Resilient, which we wrote together, and he's also my dad. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm good, Forrest, and as always, I love doing these with you. I recently had a conversation with my partner, Elizabeth, who's a somatic therapist that we aired on the podcast feed. And as part of that conversation, we talked about cognitive bypassing. We shared that little clip to Instagram and to TikTok, and there was a lot of interest in it, which included a lot of questions about how people can work with and better understand this common issue. So that's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to be talking about cognitive bypassing, but I'm really kind of secretly hoping to use it as a way into exploring how therapy works altogether, the role of insight, and what can help people turn their insights into action. So does that sound good to you? A usual forest dive. I think we need a term. <laughs> I think we need a term forest <laughs> to forestize something. Uh-huh, Just, uh-huh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, something about starting with what might seem kind of simple. That's it, that's it. You reach down to the ground, and it looks like a little stick. Just a stick, cognitive bypassing wood. But when you pull the stick, suddenly this gaping trap door opens taking you down into underlying tunnels and treasures in reality. That was a very kind way to talk about me making something excessively complicated. So thank you, Dad. I I really appreciate that positive framing (laughs) you turned onto this whole thing. But let's start start with the little twig, and then we can go to the massive tree, you know? So what is cognitive bypassing? It's a technical term to be understood in therapy as essentially someone using so-called cognitive processes, typically narrowly language-based, hyper-rational, Spock-like processes, because, of course, all mental processes are cognitive in a certain kind of sense, and basically intellectualizing, abstracting, to bypass. That's the idea. It's not just that someone's thinking about something productively, but they're thinking about that thing functionally to serve the function of bypassing, avoiding, so forth, challenging, scary, difficult material. Therefore, the bypass maneuver is in the way of the treatment process, psychotherapy. It's a therapeutic process of one kind or another. And so you then have to work with helping the person continue to feel safe enough to explore their material so they don't have to bypass it, and then you can get into it. Could you give maybe an example, like practically, of how this shows up in therapy? Person walks in the door, they're dealing with a certain kind of issue. What does cognitive bypassing look like? Great. A couple examples. One is someone who just wants to tell you about their day or their week. So they're reporting. They're reporting. And sometimes it can have the quality of what's called technically, this is a term from, I believe, James Masterson, very important body of work, you know, in psychotherapy of being a witness at an execution. So they'll just report to you kind of calmly the horror show of their week, and you're like, what? <laughs> you know, Or they try to make you the witness at their own execution, so they're reporting a lot of suffering, but it's just a report almost, and they're not letting you do anything about it. So that's one way this could show up. A second way is, let's say you have a couple you're working with, A and B, And A starts yelling at B, let's say. So you're bad, you're wrong, you hurt me, I'm going to leave you. And then therapist, a little dazed, but trying to find their footing, turns to B and says, wow, that was a lot. How do you feel about what A just said? Okay. And then B says something like, well, I think A is wrong. Or it didn't happen. It didn't happen like that. They're bypassing telling you about their feelings and getting in touch with their feelings. So that would be another way maybe it would show up. There's a whole territory that's more, it's not like you you either bypass or you go straight down the highway, but it's more like they're spinning their reality in some ways. They're giving you an account of a childhood, very matter-of-factly, that was just fine and normal. And then you start learning that, well, their mom 
was drunk by one in the afternoon, so she could never pick them up at school. And their dad was very angry and disengaged. And there's a fair amount of spanking. And what, you moved to 12 different schools by the time you graduated high school? And suddenly you get more of a story. But the person mm. has spun mm. it in some way to bypass. And they use language maybe to soften the edges or to overcomplicate something or, or rationalize it. Like, well, they, they are just doing the best they could. I love new age bypassing, not, but anyway, <laughs> oh, it's the best of all possible worlds. Like, no, I read Candide back in college and he was wrong. <laughs> A little Candide reference on the podcast here, Dad. I didn't see that one coming. That was good. <laughs> Candide was cool. It was his buddy, the philosopher, whose name escapes me. That was a target of Voltaire's irony. Anyway, that was great. I love that. So just to kind of finish our setup here, and then we can dig more into the whole of the tree trunk rather than the little twig that's coming coming up above the ground. What's the function that this behavior is serving? Because you were talking earlier about like have, you know having a having a function associated with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, always study the function. You know, follow the money. Right. Cue bene. To what end? Who is served? Yeah. And so that's such a useful thing when you're observing your own mind to ask yourself to step back from it, to draw on the psychological flexibility that enables you to step back from it, like we talked about in a previous episode. Nice reference there, Dad. Good, good callback. Yeah. Seriously, to, to be able to reflect on it, it's really, really important. Why am I thinking this? Why am I saying that? Why am I getting so mad about this? Why do I just not want to talk about that? You know, what's the function it serves? So usually it's about avoiding painful, you know, material, or you think it will be painful. That's one. I think another thing that people are motivated around, the function it serves, is to prevent a kind of disorganization of often a loosely held together psychological structure with bubble gum and bailing wire. That feels very rickety, very precarious, very and fragile. So cognitive bypassing is kind of a way to just keep it the way it is, you know. Can't we all just be nice? Something like that. Those are two big functions that I've seen. Avoiding pain, understandably, and avoiding change. To name a third one here that I think is probably useful for the kind of people who might have seen this episode title pop up in your podcast search bar or YouTube search bar or whatever and go, oh, that sounds interesting to me. There are a lot of people who have a really hard time experiencing emotions broadly. Yeah. And this can be either the experience of emotionality as a kind of theoretical construct almost, or the physical sensation of it in the body. And they're really cut off from that experience for one reason or another, and we might get into some of the reasons during this episode. But for people who fall into that category, the only option that a person might feel is available to them is describing something cognitively. Yeah. I was talking with Stephanie Fu pretty recently. She's the author of What My Bones Know, which is about complex PTSD and her personal history. And one of the things that she reported is basically she gets asked a lot, well, how did it feel to have this thing happen to you? Or how did it feel to have your mother talk to you that way or do that thing to you? And her report, to loosely paraphrase here, hopefully accurately, is basically that it probably felt really bad, but I don't have a feeling of it in the moment. And I have this kind of sense of separation from that feeling, which is a form of disassociation. So for somebody who really can't speak to how they felt about something, their only really option is to report it to you. So that's kind of another third category of people who might end up cognitively bypassing a lot. I think that's a really important point, and it, it relates to a general thing about technical terminology in psychotherapy, which is very well intended. It's grounded in a fair amount of academic research. So in academic research, there's an emphasis on refining your constructs and defining them kind of precisely. But on the other hand, it can feel pathologizing or blaming. Totally. Like there you are, you're in denial, or there you are mm -hmm. bypassing again. So it, I'm really glad you emphasized the point you just made there for us to realize that we so-called bypass for a good reason. Sometimes, honestly, we just don't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's another thing too. A uh, dear friend of mine uh, lost his uh, adult son at 19 to cancer. And 30 years later, I was a young therapist and 
I said to my friend in a well-meaning way, hey, if you ever want to talk about it, you know, let me know. I might help you. And my friend said to me, I've talked about it so much. And every time I do, I feel terrible. So, you know, I don't talk about it very much. And I, I went, yeah, I got it. It was, he wasn't in denial. And he's a person who's very prepared to feel painful feelings. He just did not choose to go there. So there's a place for some of these things, you know, that's definitely true. And I, I think the distinction you're making between can't and won't in effect is right. Yeah. Yeah. There are me, man, for a long time, I just wasn't in touch. I couldn't say what I was feeling because I wasn't mm. feeling it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Way. Yeah. Totally. And then there are people who they could talk about it. They could get into it. They could even express it. They could act out the anger or the sadness, let's say, but they choose not to, you know, and then you're in the exploration of why did they choose not to? And then with other people, and helping them through therapy to have the choice in the first place. Mm, I love that. I think that's a great way to think about it. And I want to piggyback off of that and ask you kind of a, a little bit more of a meta question here, which gets to this idea of, for starters, is cognitive bypassing, quote unquote, a bad thing? Because mm. that's the way that it's often presented as this construct that has these problems associated with it. And then really more broadly, do you think that we have to feel our feelings in order to work with them or get value from therapy because we talk a lot of the time on the podcast about like the role of insight we had a conversation recently for our 300 ish episode where i talked about how insight doesn't always lead to action and cognitive bypassing can be kind of a form of that where somebody's almost trapped in the insight but isn't able to get down to the feelings themselves do you think that that's necessarily something that gets in the way of somebody dealing with their problems? Like, do we have to feel those emotions in that way in order to do something about them? This is deep. And you have right here, in a way, a kind of summary of the 100-year, roughly, history <laughs> of clinical psychology. Give it 123. Like, if we yeah. mark it at Freud publishing on the interpretation of dreams and beginning to do psychoanalysis... Yeah, it's, it's really pretty short, but you've sort of summarized the journey of it. I'll offer two opinions for us and see what you think of them, you know? Yeah, I'm just curious what your view is. Yeah. One opinion is that there are different kinds of people. I think I've told you the little f- story of Carl Jung being interviewed on camera in England, like, like 1955 or 50 or something. And he was asked in the interview, who's right, you or Freud? And he smiled and said, well, I think there are some people who have a Freudian psychology. And there are other, some people, maybe, like me, have a Jungian psychology. And if you have a kind of Jungian psychology, maybe you'll find some help here. With a little half smile, right? Yeah. And the elderly Swiss gentleman that he was at that point. And I think that the truth is there are some people, and I'm probably among them, I suspect you are too, who are really served by thinking out loud about their, their own mind. Totally. Yep. And can connect or, for example, will read about depth or psychology and they will get it while they're reading it. There'll be a fairly rapid connection between ideation, that aspect of cognition, abstraction, categorization, because then it gets embodied quickly. There are other people for whom when they're talking in that way, they're disconnected. It's like the engine is running but the car's not in gear. There's no traction. And it could be technically helpful as a therapist to start understanding what kind of person you're dealing with, while also being careful to go the other way. That I think there's some people, and there's a tendency of this in the psychotherapeutic world, who when they encounter someone who is you know, facile with language and uses language and, and is thoughtful, it's important to not automatically assume that they're in their head and are using their intelligence in that way as a bypass, because maybe they're not. And so I've kind of given a little bit of thought to the ways in which it's important to not privilege your own personality style or your own nature or temperament yeah, and universalize it and just to be kind of careful about that. So it was a bit of a frame into this. Like, it's okay to think about your stuff if it's useful for you. That's part one. 
Part two, you're exactly right. I've met so many people, and I was among them in my earlier days, who could give you a master's thesis on their own psyche and were as unhappy and dysfunctional as ever. Yeah. They understood it. It's like the old line, something like, that person knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. Just, they weren't connected. That that definitely can happen. And I find sometimes that people, I sometimes had clients who would want to come in and report their psyche to me as if they were presenting a master's thesis or a PhD defense. I've totally fallen into that in therapy, by the way. Like I can remember individual sessions that I had. Oh yeah, with my therapist where they would ask me about it and I would, I could give them like a six minute monologue on it and the context of it and everything that happened and all of that and just like lay it out and and yet be still like totally entrapped by it. Yeah. And as in in therapy, to give people enough room to tell you their story or give you their account a few times, but then start moving into, okay, you know all that about yourself. Gee, what else is true? Or what what would help here? Or what else do you long for? Where does it hurt? Right? These these kind of questions. Mm-hmm. Last then about insight. In the history of psychoanalysis, there was a strong emphasis on sort of like revelatory insight. Mm-hmm. On the part of the client, gently guided by the so-called mainly neutral but occasionally occasional interpretations from the analyst. These cathartic breakthrough moments yeah. where the client would realize something or uncover some some past moment of history or trauma or whatever, and, it, and in the moment that it appeared, it would release and fully process, yeah. Yeah, you get a full release, a full yeah. release. And, and that happens sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of later therapies really productively basically involve two things in particular. One, they involve a kind of readjustment of the underlying ecosystem of the psyche. The characters, their relationships, the dynamics, so it's shifting the relationships among the forces and vectors and parts and so forth of the person, mainly by just talking about it. Not a lot of insight, making room for those voices, airing it out, some understanding, not so much revelatory insight, but understanding of where they came from, you know, in your childhood and that. You're just kind of airing it out. And the process of authentic self-expression is the key to that. Hmm. In a vulnerable, open and real way, speaking your truth. How is it for you? How was it? Just that. Just that alone. And it's wonderful that that alone is so generative hmm. of that realignment, you know, of you're, you're the inner ecology of your own mind. Then, second, additionally, and this is really recent in terms of a formal aspect of therapy, the mindfulness-centered therapies, that adds to what I just said, a shift of relationship to the whole ecology, to the whole village or zoo or you know, of your inner landscape. So you shift mm-hmm. your relationship to it. So it's not just re-harmonizing the landscape, it's about re-establishing a different relationship to it that's much more spacious and free in relationship to that landscape. Yeah, that context is really useful, I think, for people to understand what we're talking about when we're talking about cognitive bypassing. But also, just a second ago, you said something along the lines of becoming more free inside of ourselves or feeling like we can express ourselves more, becoming more actualized. And I really like that notion a lot more than the phrase that people will sometimes use with cognitive bypassing, which is that people just need to feel their feelings more. Ah, yeah. And telling somebody who is prone to cognitive bypassing to just feel their feelings more is a bit like telling somebody who struggles with depression to just be less sad. It is not very productive. It's a, it's not very helpful, and it's not very helpful for two reasons. The first reason is that a lot of the time, if people have spent any amount of time with these topics, working on their interior, whatever it is, like they're very aware that this is their tendency. It's not like they're unaware of this. Sure, some people are, but a lot of people aren't. And this remains a challenge just because of the way that their interior is, because of their tendencies as a person. The second reason that it's not very useful is, wow, it's really blaming. Mm -hmm. 
you're, you're setting up a framework where somebody just like hasn't been willing to feel their feelings or they don't get that they're just supposed to feel their feelings or, oh, if you just go into that room over there and feel your feelings, all of your problems won't be problems anymore. And that just like couldn't be further from the truth. You know, this is a, this is a complicated process for people, it can be really difficult for, for people to access. I mean, it was pretty hard for me to access for a long time. And I was somebody who had incredibly strong emotions to feel. It was because they were so strong that I struggled with them occasionally. So I could imagine how it could be even more difficult for somebody who doesn't feel like they have that strong core of emotionality inside of themselves, where they're, they're reaching down inside and they feel like they're finding nothing there. And then to be essentially blamed for not being able to feel properly or what we construct as properly, it just feels very unhealthy to me. I'm so glad you talked about that. Thoroughly agree with you. And some of the more painful experiences that I've had, especially in my college days, in my 20s, is to be in situations where people would say to me, Rick, you're so out of touch, or you must feel your feelings, or you feel like a wound up spring about to explode because I wasn't sharing my feelings. You're so in your head. And, mm. oh, it felt very shaming, made me mad. What's my next step? I'm now going to perform on demand and spill my guts. But I actually don't feel safe enough with you, asshole, to spill my guts. <laughs> <laughs> but now you're making me wrong for spill, not spilling my yeah. guts. What a double yeah. bind right there, a crazy yeah. maker. So that's part one, I guess. Part two, I find myself thinking about what you've said about insight and mm. just that topic. And I think it's one thing to understand yourself in a useful way. That's cognitive, in effect. Is that a bypass? But you can understand yourself, and then what do you do with that understanding? The other thing, though, when I think back on my experiences that might be called insight in the sense that there was like a complete release then and there around something, or a permanent spaciousness around it, maybe I still had to practice with it over time, so it literally didn't arise at all, but there was a permanent shift there, like when a shift happens. It usually had some aspect that was cognitive, that was about understanding, along with usually a lot of somatic and affective content, sensation and emotion, in which there was a kind of completion of a gestalt which is also a topic for us to explore more maybe in the future, where things just suddenly, it's almost like pieces in a, in a lock, like the tumblers in a lock that were stuck, and then suddenly they're lubricated and they fall into place. Now you can open the door. It has that feeling in it, and there's a sense of completion. So even though we use a word like insight, which sounds very seeing into, right? It's more like feeling under than seeing into you from above and allowing something to complete, which might be a release, like, like a burst of emotion of some kind is completing or a letting go, or you suddenly realize, oh, I didn't have to look at it like that, or oh, I wasn't really that one. But it, it has that sense of a coming together that's not hyper-rational at all. We all know that the food we eat today affects how we feel tomorrow. But what if I told you that it could affect how you felt in 20 years? We're learning so much these days about our bodies, and one of the challenges for people right now is that there's an enormous amount of information out there, but it can be difficult to separate fact from fiction. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Naomi's Apple Review says Zoe Science and Nutrition is super easy to consume, even if you don't understand the science, with loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting, cutting-edge science. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Naomi and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeingWell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeingWell. As somebody who has a long history of painful acne and related skin issues, I know how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's where our sponsor, OneSkin, comes in. Most skincare available on the market is designed to provide a temporary reduction in symptoms, without addressing many of the underlying causes. OneSkin's OS01 line of products targets cellular senescence. This is a key hallmark of aging directly with their proprietary OS01 peptide. The OS01 peptide can reduce the number of senescent cells by up to 50%, strengthening the skin barrier, improving skin health markers, and reducing visible signs of aging. I've been using their OS01 face topical supplement, and I love how simple it is. You just cleanse, you pat your skin dry, and apply twice daily. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After you purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. I think what we're what we're kind of stepping around is that there are various ways into this sort of a topic. And let's take it as just a premise for what we're going to talk about for the rest of the conversation, that it's good to get a sense for that interior. And there is a way in which we can just hang out in the cognizing that can get in the way of productive movement forward in our lives. Definitely. Right. So let's like kind of take that as a as, as yeah. a premise here. Paralysis by analysis would be an example. Forms of rumination, forms oh, of obsessive yeah. thinking can be kinds of excessive cognizing. And let's kind of like take this framework of our goal is to get more authentically present with whatever's there for you. From there, what I think can be really helpful for people is finding their unique way into this topic as a whole. For me, Forrest, just feel your feelings was not very useful. And I think that for a lot of people who struggle with cognitive bypassing, it's not that useful. People who cognitively bypass are probably more likely to be kind of logical, rational, top-down people than people who don't. That's my own theory. I don't know if that was borne out in practice in terms of the people you worked with in therapy, Dad. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yep. So totally. And that's part of the reason that they cognitively bypass, right? They were like rewarded for cognizing in various right. ways, and they're good at it. So yeah. hey, why not keep on doing it? It's probably going to be really hard for somebody to do it like a total 180 and go full touchy-feely on their interior, <laughs> right? That's just not their way in. So maybe for them, it's really useful to understand why they cognitively bypass, to get like a sense of context without minimizing that context, right? Without like minimizing their emotional experience. Something that was helpful for me was almost like externalizing my body or externalizing my feelings as almost this separate character that I could get some separation from and almost have like a conversation with. That's a pretty logical top-down process. Like that requires a certain amount of cognizing, but it really helped me get a feeling for my interior. And that was much more accessible to me than just like trying to drop down into the basement and feel all the overwhelming emotions all at once. So for starters, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about any of that, including just the whole notion of finding different ways in to the, the feel in your feelings process. Well, I both agree with what you've said there, Forrest. And as your friend, I just have empathy for what that was like for you. Mm. In terms of ways of becoming more in touch with ourselves, 
I want to put a little nod in here for my friend John Prendergast's really deeply wise and effective book called In Touch. It's about getting in touch with yourself. And what's it, what's it feel like to actually be in touch with yourself? It's a really good one. When I think about people in general and the, the growth process, it so often involves doing two things at once, which are a kind of linking in the terminology I use in the HEAL process, in which we're stabilized in some place that's good while stretching into a place that could be scary. Mm. If you're only in the place that's good and you're not stretching, there's a question about your psychological flexibility and also you're not growing. I, I hadn't thought about sort of what I was doing through that lens or, or this kind of process uh, through that lens, but I think you're totally right on. It totally is a kind of linking. That's a great call out, Dad. Yeah, yeah, you're doing the two together and, and you're bringing that sense of groundedness and safety to the, to the next discomfort, let's say. And so I find to do that, it's helpful to establish the sense of basic all rightness in the present, like you're here, you're okay, and then start becoming more and more aware of, of neutral or positive body sensations. This is helpful even for people of a trauma history. Developing interoception, yeah, totally. Right, and picking sensations, maybe it's a very safe external sensation like hugging yourself, right? Something that doesn't trigger the, the trauma history, let's say, around the body, and then expanding from there. But body awareness is the foundation of self-awareness. And it's also the case in the old line, right? Phylogeny recapitulates ontogeny that our growing upness as little infants is really sensory motor centered and then layered on top of that are more and more complex developments and including personal history, right? So you go down to the foundation and then build up right from there. And if you're curious about Rick's usage of technical terminology here, I will be explaining that phrase in the Patreon notes for this episode. <laughs> Thanks, Dad, for giving me an opportunity to put a plug in. Good stuff, professional podcasting. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> no, it's oh, this whole conversation. Okay, so getting in touch with the, your body, really foundational. People who say, I, I'm, I don't know, what to do, just start with body sensations. Yeah, I love that as a technique, yeah. Yeah, just start there. You know, and it really is true. I, I find that one of the most poignant and safest ways to get in touch with oneself is to stay with, you know, the sense of kindness, mm. benevolence toward another person, simple, genuine, warm-heartedness, which can be fraught for some people because it stirs up longings to receive that, which have not been fulfilled, or it might bring up shame for times you weren't so warm-hearted, let's say. But if you can stay with it, if it's okay, it's a really nice way to get in touch with yourself. It's self-evident that you really do have a good intention. You really do have a caring, a friendliness towards someone. You don't have to be a saint. There may be other things alongside it, like you're still mad at them for something, this or that. But still, you know, and you get in touch with it. It's affectively positive, and it's very close to the core of who we are, too. The closer you get to core expressions of yourself, then you're getting a lot of bonuses about being able to be more deeply in touch with yourself because you're getting in touch with what's deep within you. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's also a cool form of self-compassion which for me was very helpful inside of this process. Because I think to your point, when people start to try to do anything new and different, it's really, really easy, understandably, to fall into a lot of shame and guilt about the ways in which they have done it before. And this is only aided by the problematic framing that we have of things like cognitive bypassing, where it is a person's fault. If they cognitively bypass and they're really supposed to be doing this other thing, and if they just did this other thing, they would do so much better. And that makes it your problem, right? As I was talking uh -huh. about earlier. And it's really easy to, to feel a lot of shame around that. And what's like the natural antidote to shame? Well, it's forms of self-compassion. And much as with anything, like it's really easy for me to say, like, just be more self-compassionate and, and often difficult for people to do in practice. Um, but a way into self-compassion, I think, is forms of like understanding understanding, again, why we have these tendencies, getting more in touch with what that deep core nature is that you were kind of referring to, 
maybe thinking a little bit about what a honest and authentic reflection of it out in the world would look like, and then trying to act from or pursue that that more authentic version of yourself that you can kind of see down the road 20, 30 steps ahead of you, but it's but it's plausibly within reach. You could kind of go like, oh yeah, I think I could do that mm-hmm. over there. And then yeah. you've got something to shoot for. That doesn't seem like pie in the sky. It doesn't seem inaccessible. It's it's available to you. I think that can be really helpful. No, that's that's really true. I, this goes to a lot of the material that you've done in the podcast, but with parts, integrating our various parts, drawing on internal family systems, as well as its progenitors in the history of psychology, this understanding of that we're manifold. I'll tell you a thing that I find that can happen where the rubber meets the road. It's kind of like cognitive bypassing in, in quarrels mm-hmm. <laughs> in real time. Yeah. Right? Okay. So it's sort of like you're with another person and they're upset about something. They're kind of in their emotions about it. That's what's foregrounded in their current moment of experience. Okay. Then you respond to it as I have. You respond to it in an intellectual way or yeah. an abstracted way or an objective. I've lived this life also for the record. Okay. You like objective, so-called, the, the bird's eye view. The scientific understanding of, of this issue is X, Y, or Z with your expertise about it. <laughs> that usually does not go well. <laughs> Wait, that, that didn't go well for you, Dad? Oh, that usually does not go well. No, I'm I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm saying sarcastically. Oh, wow. Surprise. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) Oh, that was a first. (laughs) And um, flip it around. There you are in an emotional place, Mm. and the other person wants you to analyze or think. How does that feel to you? Yeah. Yeah. And I had, when I was in therapy, I had, to me personally, shocking experiences because I know I'm someone who is a good student and I can think on my feet and I'd be in the middle of my material and my therapist, wonderful therapist, uh, would ask me some kind of question and it would just take me out of my material. I I couldn't think about it. I didn't want to think about it. And I kind of learned gently to say, oh, let me stay here a little while longer in it. And so that other person is in their material and we're coming back at them like Spock. Sorry, Spock, I like you. Mm, not so good. And in a funny way, so it's sort of like interactive bypassing. Mm-hmm. You know? And uh, how to not do that. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that? Yeah, I, I think the relational aspect of this that you're pointing to is such a huge part of it. Because it's it's one thing to feel our own feelings on our own sitting on our sofa, maybe giving ourselves the gentle hug that you were talking yeah. about earlier, dad, whatever it is. Like that's that's one context for it. And it's such a different thing to feel our feelings in front of another person. Mm. Boy, that is right. Yeah. Like it's it's infinitely more scary, vulnerable, inaccessible. And my personal theory is that that's a huge part of why therapy works. Is yeah. that it's not just that you're experiencing with the aid of another person, you're experiencing in front of another person. It's the relational context of it that helps us to improve. And you're and you're practicing that relationality with your emotions and like real time in interaction. And and so I just think that that's like such a huge piece of the puzzle. And to your point, it's something to be doubly conscious about in terms of our interactions with and our relationships with other people, that when they are in that moment, of feeling in themselves that we that we honor it and that we appreciate that it's going on and that we not like rip them out of it in some kind of uncomfortable way. Maybe because we're uncomfortable. Yeah. A lot of the time the cognitive bypass is occurring because like there is a deep feeling that is vulnerable in us or it's stirring something up in us what the other person is doing that we don't want to encounter. I mean, I think that's really true for me. I I would go do a very cognitive place in my, I'll use the word argument. They weren't always arguments, but it's a convenient word. And in my interactions with other people, sometimes because that was just my default and it was just a habit, but sometimes because it was a great way to avoid emotional content. Also in the service of distancing, because typically authentic emotional self-disclosure is a joining. Very intimate. It's joining. Totally. Yeah. And intellectualizing tends to be more distancing. 
So maybe sometimes we do it in the service of distancing because it's getting too close. We're feeling, you know, we're feeling too close. Well, I wonder about applying that, Dad. And I'm I'm just riffing here, but I'm curious what yeah. your take is on the on the notion essentially of like self-distancing. And here's what I mean. Like, so we've got IFS, right? We've got all these different parts inside of ourselves, different aspects of the psyche, whatever. Is there a part of you that you struggle to accept? Is there a part of this person who's cognitively bypassing that maybe they struggle to accept? And maybe that's some of the justification for it. Like there's an emotion inside that is deemed unacceptable and therefore they either can't or won't experience it. I think that's true for a lot of people. But I mean, just talking about my own history as a male-bodied person growing up in a Western context, feeling a lot of warm and fuzzy, soft, vulnerable emotions is not really like a culturally validated thing, right? You know, it's the whole boys don't cry, stiff upper lip, that whole deal. Thankfully, I wasn't raised inside of that family context. You and Bob were very welcoming of all of the emotions, which is great. But, you know, you grow up in the cultural milieu. That's kind of part of the deal. And... I think that a lot of people have to do a lot of acceptance work inside of themselves in order to start to be able to move past cognitive bypassing and like accept the presence of these vulnerable emotions at all and kind of reclaim that part of themselves as part of the whole psyche as opposed to this like little corner of it that they've pushed off to the side. Definitely, Forrest. I mean, that's what I've seen and that's also certainly my personal experience. Yeah, so I, I just have a question about this for you, Dad, because yeah. whenever we post a clip about anything having to do with like sensing into your interior, feeling your feelings, or all of the things that we're talking about in this episode today, we get a lot of comments almost every time, questions about like, well, but how do I do that? Wait, but I can't do that. Wait, but I don't feel anything when I get in there. I hear a lot of people tell me to not cognitively bypass, but then nobody gets to like the how do you actually do the not cognitively bypassing part. And I do think that we've talked about that a little bit so far, but I would love just like a little bit more of your take on whether it's through the the lens of like reclaiming these aspects of ourselves or it's literally practically step by step how to how to interocept or wherever you want to take that. Like what have you seen be really useful for people? Starting with body sensations is really accessible because people are having body sensations. So set them up to be safe so that they can just notice, can you feel your feet on the floor? Mm, okay, so granularly you're talking about yeah, like tap the your breath feet, or feet on the floor. You're noticing okay. sensations there. A certain amount of our experience is not very accessible to language, which is hard to label. And then you have issues with alexithymia, as you know, people mm -hmm. have been traumatized sometimes. But just in terms of the stream of consciousness, most of it is nonverbal, and a person is aware. So tap your feet on the floor, there's sensations, move your knees, what's that like? And can you just stay with sensory awareness? Charlotte Silver kind of work, Lee Lesser kind of work, just sensory awareness. That was great for me. And one of the best forms, there's a detail of sensory awareness is, and people who do this as specialists know much more than I do, is to be aware of the movement of your joints through space. I like that. That's cool. It is yeah. cool. You could do it. You're there. You're a dancer. Like yeah, you totally. really know that's about that's where I went to it. I was like, oh yeah, I know that as a feeling associated. With and it. suddenly yeah, you're in touch with yourself. Yeah, and also yeah. it's integrating. Yeah. It's not fragmenting. You know. And so there's and even just little things like moving your shoulders, your torso, in the chair. Uh, locating, you know, getting a sense of your body vertically or not, and and things that draw on body movement like yoga, tai chi, dancing, that's very foundational and it's accessible. You can be successful at it. That's the thing, mm. Forrest. In the the subtext, almost of some of the things you've said, is the poignant longing of some people to be more in touch with themselves, and they want to be successful at it and to feel good at it. Yeah, and they've been totally invalidated around it. And the good news here is that. Really, the path in is through sensation. It's the foundation. It's the foundation. And sensations that you like and you can stay present with. Not mm -hmm. just tolerate, as someone pointed out to me recently around distress, distress tolerance, but a preferred term maybe would be to stay present with. So that's there, definitely. And then very simple, there's a model of affect and sensation that basically has two dimensions to it. You know about this one where it's an intensity dimension 
and a valence dimension, right? Intensity. So you're you're helping people just, you know, do you feel quiet or do you feel active, low energy, high energy? And you're doing two things there. You're most fundamentally increasing self-awareness. And secondarily and important, you're helping people develop a kind of vocabulary for their own interior. So language then becomes an aid rather than a bypass. You're having people report out, you know, just their intensity and then the positivity. Do you like a chocolate chip in your mouth? Hmm. How much do you like it? So scale of one to 10, it's like a, you know. Yeah, intensity. And then you can play around there. Yeah. And again, that can be, just to name it really quickly, that can be something that you experience inside of yourself that you do not verbalize if you struggle with verbalization. Very true. You don't have to, even if you do this, say, with a clinician, they can go through a process where they just ask a series of questions, and it's almost like a guided meditation, as opposed to these all being things that you have to respond to in the moment. And that can be really helpful for people. Yeah, very much so. Maybe just the last one is to, well, actually next to last, uh, noting practices, classic, where you're just simply naming in a fairly succinct way what's there. When people are sharing their experience, distinct from the story, it's usually quite succinct. There are not a lot of words for it, like hurt, sad, soft, mad, mad about being sad. Hmm. Okay, so I just did that right there. And that's not atypical, and I could relate to it from the inside out as well, but that was less than half a minute for a complete account. So it's okay that you don't have to have have a lot of words, but simple noting, just kind of like I did there. The one more, and here too, it's really safe usually, is to inquire into other people. Mm. Ask them what they're experiencing and slow it down. And kind of open to empathy for what they're experiencing while they are maybe maybe with somebody who's a little more adept at talking about their experience, you are then empathically starting to put language to associate it with different states of being inside your own body, you know, feelings, sensations, and so forth, just by being interested in another person. What's it like to be you? Learn a lot, just asking people questions. Totally, totally. And something in this that maybe we'll close with because we've spent a good amount of time here. And it's a little tricky to talk about. I would love to get your sense on this as a clinician dad and maybe the interactions that you've had with people inside of the office. The flip side of everything that I said earlier about, hey, there are a lot of people who really struggle to feel the feels for a variety of different reasons, including that some people simply like don't have that kind of sensation inside of their body to them. It's, it's not accessible to them inside of their experience or because they were brought up in a certain kind of way or they had a trauma history, whatever it is, very understandable reasons. At the same time, sometimes it feels like the response to, hey, it would be helpful to feel your feelings every once in a while can tend in the direction of, oh, I just can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And every time that you propose a different suggestion to somebody, there's a reason that they can't do it. Oh, I can't do that because of this, and I can't do that because of that, and I can't do that because of this other thing. And so I would just be a little conscious and a little careful of falling into the trap of being very rigid about what is and isn't available to you, Mm. or about what you could or couldn't possibly do. Because, hey, maybe you're right. Maybe you really can't do this. Maybe this truly is not accessible to you. That that could be true. But once we decide that it is 100% true, that this is totally not accessible to me, we've completely cut ourselves off from the possibility of it changing, from the possibility of things being different in the future than they are right now. And that removes this as a practice from you. And, you know, that's a bummer. That's a big bummer. That's a big cost. And as we talked about in our previous episode, I'm a bit of a reformed rigid person. So I certainly have a lot of experience with that kind of like strong allegiance to a thought. And sometimes it feels like people can get kind of allied with 
I, I don't want to use like the word dysfunction, but something like that inside of themselves, and they and they can get very defensive about perpetuating it. And it, it's a tricky thing to talk about, Dad. But I'm wondering if that's something you've bumped into, or maybe if you could apply more more skillful language to this than I have so far. What you said there, Forrest, was profound. Hmm. Well, thank you. Yeah, and it reminds me of going back to the '70s again. The second book after Jonathan Livingston Siegel by mm. Richard Bach. Love that book, by the way. One of my favorite books when I was younger, yeah. Oh, that's great. His second book also is just prof- really profound called Illusions. And there's a line in it, don't argue for your limitations, essentially. Maybe said a little better. And that's what you're speaking to here. Yeah, and there's there's a really, it's tough to talk about because there's such a balance between like accepting ourselves as we are which is really, really important. And also appreciating the real differences between people. A lot of the like, don't argue for your limitations language can frankly fall into being just really, just kind of discriminatory against people who have different kinds of brains or different kinds of processes. It can be very, you know, proto-neurotypical of me to be like, oh, if you just keep on arguing. Yeah, very privileged to be like, oh, you're just arguing for the limitation of your your ADHD brain. And if you just didn't argue for your limitations, you'd be able to, like, you know, whoa. So it's tough to talk about because, of course, I don't want to fall into that pitfall. And at the same time, hey, we want to create the space of possibility inside of ourselves at least a little bit here. Particularly if we find ourselves getting, like you're saying, Dad, just really on the same team with the really rigid, limited voice that like lives inside of the mind. I, I don't know if I've threaded that needle properly here because I think it's a kind of delicate needle, but I hope that there is something in that that people find useful. I think that's very fair and right, what you're saying there. Great. And this may come across as a little curmudgeonly. Well, you're you're wandering into your curmudgeon era, Dad. You you've you're past seventy. Like this is the moment. You're supposed to be on the porch, shaking your fist at the kids on your lawn. This is it. Go to town. If you're not going to do it now, then when? Right, kids. If you ever gift me with your presence on my lawn, you can play there all day long. Ah, that's very sweet, Dad. <laughs> well, I guess. So let's make a distinction. I think, I mean, there there are people, and I've had times in my life where, no, I could not lift my eyes to the horizon. Yeah. I needed sure. to keep them on the ground in front of me, and I was too damn tired from the long day I worked to lift that gaze. Okay. Mm-hmm. And when people do have that option to dare more greatly, right, as Brene Brown would put it, say, or to look up to the horizon or to imagine a world that we truly realistically could have or that they could have themselves. Like I have worked with a lot of people. There are a lot of people who dislike some aspect of their life. They wish it were different. And yet they don't particularly take action. They realistically actually could take it toward making a better life. Yeah. So trying to avoid the pitfall, you know, of blaming and shaming and so forth and just being accurate and encouraging, you know, a lot of us, or let's say a lot of people could afford to widen their view, elevate their gaze, and dream of the possibilities that are actually realistic that they could make in their life, including with other people. Yeah. Whether it's just being one step more revealed or one step more tolerant of closeness or one degree more autonomous, one degree more loose, authentic self-expression, you could do it. Yeah. Maybe to put this another way that kind of helps get around some of the complexities here or just integrate them in a healthier way, people's possibilities are going to be different. Of course, the possibilities that are available to to me or to you, Dad, might not be available to some other person. So that's that's life. That's real. But inside of our possibilities, we can always ask what might be possible for us. And that itself can be a really useful practice. So sure, your possibilities might be constrained by all of these different things. 
And yet there is still a range of possibilities, and arguing for the limited side of that range is yeah. is often not necessarily super productive for us. And part of it has to do, honestly, with the collective mind. And just like we could say to an individual, are you thinking too small? Mm. Are you thinking too narrowly, too near-termly, as it were? We could say that to humanity or to a country. What's your vision? And I think about corporations that are fixated on next week's profit report, the quarterly report. I can think about countries that are consumed by the next election cycle. And it's interesting that most countries don't actually, as a society, say basically, what kind of society do we want to build over the next generation? And as humanity, 8 billion of us, I just think we really need to come together to think wider and bigger and longer and to speak up collectively and, and dream big. There are many, many people who are in organizations working to make a better world. What kind of world could we have if we work together more? But part of it has to do with vision, vision of the possible. Yeah, I think this notion of like vision under real constraint is a really interesting topic and, and maybe an episode that we could do in the future, perhaps with a guest, which would be great. Who could bring in more of a knowing, like an intimate knowing of those kinds of constraints and you know, just the real limitations that people have in terms of their physiology, their neurology, whatever it is that's going on. You know, my partner Elizabeth has has ADHD and complex PTSD and premenstrual dysphoric disorder. And so she's got a little bit of an alphabet soup going on, as she's talked about very openly on the podcast in the past. And and those are real constraints that do really limit some of the choices that she has, as a, as a way to put it. There are constrained choices for her. But even within those constraints, she's somebody who I think has really like done a deliberate process of asking over and over again, like what might be possible for me, even with all of these constraints. And, you know, it's been extremely productive for her. So I had a conversation with a mentor of mine, passed away a while ago from UCLA, just an extraordinary man, one of the five probably most influential people in my life, really, named uh, Jules Zentner. And uh, he was a advisor at UCLA, a professor of Scandinavian languages. So I knew him because I was taking Swedish there and a wonderful man. And I was sitting with him one time toward the end of college. And I was like a 20-year-old hippie with long hair and full of myself. And I said, Jules, creativity is about bursting through all boundaries, all restrictions, just destroying them. And then in that free space, you make up something new, something like that. We were having lunch. And he said, uh, I don't think so, Rick. I think creativity is what happens when we meet some kind of form like you were saying, Forrest, that's fixed and it requires creativity yeah, to transcend it. Like the creativity that encounters the haiku form, three lines, 17 syllables. And that's where you start to explore and, and discover creativity when you're working with constraints. I always thought it was a beautiful spin. Mm -hmm. Well, I love this. And I think that it is a uh, an unexpected but really lovely note to end today's episode on cognitive bypassing of all things on. Whoa. And as you were saying, Dad, at the beginning of it, we found the twig and we began pulling <laughs> on it until the tree emerged. You know? <laughs> you know, I just really want to emphasize at the end that to say the obvious, different people are different. Yeah. And there are going to be different ways in to different people who are going to get different value out of different topics. And that's all okay. And that's all really okay. And part of the practice is the practice of acceptance, you know, accepting ourselves, accepting other people, and being open to whatever those truths are for them. Beautiful. Today, I talked with Rick about cognitive bypassing, which is a form of avoidance coping. It's really normal for us all to have emotions and feelings that rise up inside of our body or appear inside of our mind that are uncomfortable. And for people who are a little bit more cognitively oriented, maybe they're a little bit more like me, a little bit more top-down, thoughtful, logical, highly rational, all of that good stuff, things that can be really positive in the course of a normal life, well, sometimes that can become a tool for actually avoiding how we feel inside. 
And Rick began the conversation by describing some common forms of cognitive bypassing. These are ways that a person might try to think their way around a problem or think themselves out of a particular kind of emotion. Common forms of cognitive bypassing include things like overthinking, which can be paralysis by analysis, right? Somebody believing that if they just understand a problem well enough, that'll help them overcome it on their own. Another example might be intellectualizing, which is using often excessively complicated language or ideas or theories to explain how they're feeling rather than, hey, actually feeling those feelings. And this can allow somebody to put their feelings in a box rather than actually experiencing and expressing them. And then finally, forms of denial or minimizing or rationalizing can all be a kind of cognitive bypassing. Downplaying the severity of my emotions is a way for me to not experience them as strongly. And this foundation around what cognitive bypassing is gave us a way into talking about the role of insight and therapy altogether. Because cognitive bypassing can be a kind of getting trapped in insight. And Rick talked about how people could come into the office and tell them just everything about themselves, every story, the context for everything that happened, all of their unique tendencies, all of their challenges, and yet seem totally incapable of doing anything about them. This is really, really normal. But it suggests that insight on its own is often not enough to solve our problems. And so I asked him how he thought about that and whether he thought it was necessary for people to, quote-unquote, just feel their feelings in order to get some relief or to have their symptoms improve. And that got us to a really important point. The phrase cognitive bypassing can be really misapplied and used as a pejorative by people inappropriately. It's really understandable for a person to not want to feel all of their emotions for a whole bunch of different reasons. And along the same lines, some amount of cognizing about our problems can be really helpful for us, right? We need to have a degree of insight in order to move into action or in order to address our problems most of the time. The question is more about where's the right line here, as opposed to saying categorically, oh, cognitively oriented stuff is bad, or body oriented stuff is bad. It can all be good and useful, it's just about how do you use it. And along those lines, just telling somebody to feel their feelings or stop cognitively bypassing is by and large not very useful. It's, for starters, something that they've probably heard before and has not been very helpful for them. Or it could be that people are trying to force them to apply tools and techniques that just don't work for them, don't work for their system, don't work for their body, don't work for their mind. And so then for the rest of the conversation, we explored some different ways that a person might start to work with their tendency to bypass their authentic experience. And that was a phrase that I think Rick used that I really liked. I liked it a lot more than the idea of help somebody feel their feelings or something like that. Because the point is to include as many aspects of our experience that are useful to us as we can include, right? We want to be able to play with all the toys and feel all of the things and just have as much of that interior available to us as we can, while also understanding and appreciating that we all have our own constraints. Different people are different, and that is really okay. What's possible for me might not be possible for somebody else. But for each of us, there exists a, a realm of possibility beyond what we are currently doing right this second. There are other things that might be available to us. And so we got to the end to this idea of not arguing for your constraints. And this can be a bit complicated to talk about because there is a, a bit of a tension between wanting to open people up to what might be possible for them, while also appreciating the very real constraints that might exist in their life, the unique needs that they have, and finding and appreciating the way in that's going to work for them. And alongside that, just being very careful about being excessively rigid and dogmatic about there being a right way to do things here. So all that said, here were a couple of the different techniques that we talked about. Rick talked about really using sensation, just pure sensation, as a way into the body. 
tapping your feet on the floor, gently hugging yourself maybe, stroking your arms with your hands, and then really doing what you can to tune into the sensation. Then, if you're in a comfortable and safe environment and you, and you feel confident doing it, after you tune into the sensation for a little while, you can start almost thinking about it as a kind of exposure therapy to misuse that terminology a little bit. Where we're starting with just sensation, and then as we get comfortable with sensation, we can move to, hey, are there any associated feelings inside of my body with this sensation? And you don't necessarily have to put a name to those feelings. If it's useful for you, you can, but you definitely don't have to. But you can follow them. You can go, oh, what is this feeling? Huh. Wow, what does this feel like inside of me? What are the associated body sensations that go along with this feeling? Is there a little bit of warmth in my chest? Is there a tightness in my throat? What's happening here? And developing that capacity for interoception, the ability to feel inside of the body altogether, is incredibly useful for a wide variety of things, including just getting more comfortable with meeting your emotions where they are. And we talked about a whole other bunch of things that a person could do, but something that I just want to highlight here in the recap is the role of acceptance practice for starters, accepting and appreciating all of the emotions, even the ones that are uncomfortable for us or or maybe ones that we were taught to push away when we were younger. And then alongside that, and it's going to sound a little touchy-feely, but you know, I think it's just really true, the value of self-compassion here. One of the big problems with cognitive bypassing talk broadly, like on social media, is that it can be super pejorative. It's very oriented through this frame of like, if you do this thing, that means that you're doing it wrong. And oh, if you just felt your feelings, you would be doing so much better. And so if you're somebody who's coming to this material and going, hey, I want to stop doing this, it can be really easy to feel a lot of a lot of shame and guilt around what's natural to you, maybe around what you're actually really good at and has been a strength in the rest of your life. And now you enter this different arena and you're like, wait, this is a problem? And believe me, I empathize. I really get that. That was very much the story of my life. And so being able to apply really deliberately some compassion to to other versions of myself and to my own feelings and to the context for the experiences that I was having was incredibly useful for me personally. So, hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, I would really appreciate it if you took a moment to subscribe to it wherever you're listening right now on. Hey, if you're listening to it, you could also watch the episode if you wanted to. You can find me on YouTube as Forrest Hansen. And if you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. Until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.